0: Welcome to Emergency Medicine Match Advice, sponsored by Academic Life and Emergency Medicine. And it's editor-in-chief, our favorite member of the Marvel Avengers franchise, Dr. Michelle Lynn from UCSF. Hello,
1: Michelle. Thanks for having me. You know, it is so ironic. I was actually going to make some analogy to the Marvel superhero verse because this panel is so amazing. I couldn't think of a better analogy. But you beat me to it, and I'm glad we're on the same page.
0: We totally are. Avengers Endgame was the best movie of 2019. I
1: haven't seen it. Spoiler alert. Don't tell me. Oh,
0: my gosh. You'll cry. I cried. And in my mind, you're the best medical educator around, so I made you an adventure. How about that? Yes, I'll take it. All right. So, Michelle, we are back with a new episode of EM Match Advice, and it's our favorite annual episode. It's like Christmas in the summer. Program directors reflect on the 2019 match. Today, we have three outstanding program directors to discuss the latest match data, Dr. Saurabh Kandawal from The Ohio
2: State University. Hello, Mike. So excited to be here. So grateful to be part of this panel and kind of hopefully share some uh, wisdom that we can give to people about the match and and how to be successful.
0: And if our listeners saw in the Mm -hmm. news, The Ohio State University is about to trademark the word the- and uh, that's a lot. We're going to have to talk about that today. Um, also welcoming Dr. Fiona Gallagher. She's the <laughs> president-elect of the Council of Residency Directors in Emergency Medicine. Quite a fancy pants. As well as the program director extraordinaire at the University of Washington in Seattle. Welcome, Fiona.
3: I am so thrilled to be here. This is like, and I'm an Avenger too. That's amazing.
0: My gosh, we'll talk about which ones we are at the end of the episode. That'll be fun. Everybody <laughs> think, which Avenger are you? And uh, probably Thor is right here on the panel. Dr. Brad Bunny, he's the leader of the Browncoats at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and my old friend from Chicago. Hello, Brad.
4: Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to do this. This is always an exciting piece, Um, and I'm looking forward at the end to asking Michelle about the formula that she created last year about the number of programs to apply to Uh and see whether or not we've had any progress on that.
0: Listen to that, Michelle, fan of oh, the I love it. Oh,
1: That's let's fun. do it.
0: Oh, let's do it. All right. So the 20, she's got to go back and figure out what she said last year. The 2019 match stats are freely available from the National Residency Matching Program's results and data tables, which are available online for anybody who wants to read them in detail. I'm going to give you some quick overview and perspective of those data that relate to the 2019 emergency medicine match in specific. So we're going to run through some numbers and then we're going to spend time discussing them with our panelists. So the number of emergency medicine programs that participated in the 2019 match was 238. That's up 15 programs from last year. And one would think 15 programs is a lot of new programs. But remember, we're in the middle of this several-year conversion from AOA accreditation to ACGME accreditation. So this is the single accreditation system, and there was a several-year window for programs accredited by the American Osteopathic Association to apply for ACGME accreditation, and that way all of the allopathic and osteopathic programs together are now accredited under one body. There's one more year for programs to do this, the single accreditation system window will close 2020. And then I think we're going to see the number of new programs sort of drop off. In the last several years, it's been going up uh, quite rapidly. So commiserate with that, the number of new positions in the match also went up 441 to a total of 2488. Certainly that represents some of the AOA conversion spots and then normal program expansion as our specialty just gets busier and busier. The number of filled positions was 2,458, and that's up 193 from last year, leaving only 30 unfilled positions. Now, 30 is a bigger number than perhaps we've had in in the discussions in the past years. Certainly in 2012, we had zero positions, and there's been several years where there's only been a couple of positions open. I would still argue to the listeners, the students especially, 30 unfilled positions out of 2,488 is less than 1%, and, and it should not be viewed as a pathway to emergency medicine. You should not view the SOAP period and the unfilled positions available then as your backup. They are not a backup. 30 might as well be zero when you're looking at 2,488. So if you're not matching in the actual match, it's an uncommon pathway to emergency medicine to get in through the SOAP. Um, Some other numbers that I think are really important, the number of filled positions by those students coming from LCME accredited programs. We talk about this on the program every year. The allopathic medical schools in the U.S., Puerto Rico, and Canada are considered LCME. These are the allopathic medical schools. And the number that filled emergency medicine positions were 1,617, up only nine spots from last year. And that's out of 24.88 in total, giving a fill rate by the LCME of 65%. Now, that number is down 5.9%. It has been going down each year that we've been adding programs from the the AOA. That's a normal expected decrease in the percent fill rate because – you know, there's a lot of AOA programs that were sponsoring emergency medicine positions. And as they convert over, then the LCME students themselves don't have an increase in interest in our specialty, then that percent fill rate is going to go down and down and down. What does that mean in terms of how competitive emergency medicine is? With no disrespect, obviously, to the osteopathic students, if we looked at the percent fill rate of programs as just an allopathic or LCME Phenomenon that those programs that are considered very competitive, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, they always fill with 90% or more students from LCME programs. And emergency medicine used to fill in the 70% range. We once... Across the 80% of our programs were filled by LCME students, but never reached the top decile. We were never with vascular surgery and neurosurgery. We were always sort of with general surgery and OBGYN, who this year, general surgery, 73.5% filled by the LCME, OBGYN, 75.2%. So they're holding steady despite their programs converting over from AOA as well, right? This is a cross-specialty accreditation phenomenon, except I think there are just more programs out there, AOA positions, for emergency medicine than perhaps there were from surgery and OB. And our fill rate, therefore, is going down a little bit compared to those specialties. So where are we in terms of competition right now? So the percent fill rate for pediatrics by LCME students is 60.2, internal medicine 41.5. So we're still perhaps a little bit more competitive than those peers, but you know, one might argue we're we're falling down a little bit compared to surgery and OB. I'll be very interested to hear what our panelists have to say about that. And then the last set of numbers that folks are always really concerned about, the unmatched numbers. And I'll say that the unmatched allopathic students, LCME students the number has always been under 100 for emergency medicine. And once again, this year it was under 100. It was 77, which is unchanged from last year. And this is these re- represent students who applied only to a single specialty, in this case, emergency medicine. And the unmatched non-LCME students, which remember, LCME students are considered senior medical students. So in the unmatched non-LCME, that could represent allopathic students who are not senior medical students. So those switching specialties in addition to allopathic and um, foreign medical graduates. And that represents 131 this year, which is down 30. Um, Again, probably because we have more positions available than we've ever had before. And that number has always been under 200. So in total, there's only 300 applicants a year or less. And this year, uh, just 200 uh, applicants did not get into emergency medicine in the primary match. So those are the numbers. Let's turn to our <coughs> panelists and get their interpretation of those numbers. And we're going to start with Dr. Kendall from Ohio State. So what kind of year was 2019
2: for emergency medicine? What do you think? More competitive, less competitive, stayed the same? Thanks, Mike. I really think that the, the level of competitiveness is about the same. And I use that in terms of looking at the experience at Ohio State University. You know, if I look at sort of our five-year history since I became program director, the number of applicants that we're seeing is not tremendously higher than it has been in the last 5 years i mean there's a there is a slight uptick and i think it's all from the osteopathic arena but overall we're not seeing a tremendous amount of increased applicants applying to our programs and then if you look at everything else in terms of competitiveness like board scores and all this other stuff you know there clearly is a little bit of an upswing from board scores over the past five years, but there's been a general increase in board scores in the U.S., and it's not significant to me. So probably make the argument that the competitiveness in our specialty is about the same as it's been over the last few years. Yeah. And I think the data supports that, right? You know, if
0: you're looking at, again, the number of positions that were filled by allopathic senior medical students. There's only nine more this year than there were last year. I mean, that's essentially saying the same. It's just we're adding a lot of other players, both in terms of new programs and positions, as well as potentially new applicants to our program from our osteopathic colleagues. So I agree with you. I think the data supports your observation. So I'll ask this. Does it matter that we're even asking this question, right? I ask this every year. When we talk about competitiveness, the students really want to know, am I competitive for X program? If we have an entire episode talking about competitive programs and competitive applicants, we might be just provoking anxiety. And I I don't know what your thoughts are on that. But I also I I think we should be honest with the students and, and tell them what we're thinking about our
2: experience year to year. Of course, it matters. The whole process is stressful for students because of all the information sort of floating around. And honestly, there's a lot of misinformation floating around. So I think the take home message is that regardless of your standardized letters of evaluation, your board scores, et cetera, there are places that are the right fit for you. And I think sessions like this should help alleviate some of the anxiety that's out there surrounding the the myth of getting into emergency medicine. You know, if you you look at sort of the number of applications that each applicant is putting in, you know, the median number of applications is about 46 for people that have matched into emergency medicine. There's a significant increase in the number of applications per candidate over the last five, 10 years. So I think you can see the anxiety that this information is having out there. And I think it's up to panels like this and and it's up to conversation that's happening to kind of take down the anxiety. So we don't need to see that level of stress anymore.
0: Yeah, 100 percent. I agree with you. I'm so happy that you characterized it in that way. Right. We've had this national discourse for several years in our specialty that emergency medicine is getting more competitive. And whether it was the program director's pushing that or the dean's offices or the students on blog sites that we won't mention, you know, there's this general feeling that emergency medicine was the super competitive specialty when perhaps it never really was. And certainly the data are not supporting that it's becoming even more competitive. Yet we do see this increase every year of the number of applications being submitted by students. And it just doesn't make sense. So I think that's perhaps the best takeaway we can have from today. Um, Do you have any other general advice based on your view of this year's 2019 match data or your observations from the Ohio State University program trends over the years? What, What is your advice as you counsel students going into the 2020 match?
2: You know, I think the biggest advice really is, and I think most of the esteemed panel will share this, is getting an advisor to really talk about what we're talking about today in a very honest, sort of authentic conversation, helping students really understand the numbers that were just presented, um, helping students understand where they fit in this puzzle in terms of their metrics and where they should think about applying. And, and if they do that sort of in a thoughtful way, we're not going to see the craziness that's been happening over the last five years. We're not going to see the AOA student from a good university applying to 40 programs. Let's do a quick round-robin. So let's say the AOA student from a really good university, how many programs should they apply to, Sirab I think an AOA from a good university should really only
4: be applying to 20 or 25 programs. Fiona?
3: I totally agree. Absolutely.
4: Brad? That was going to be my number as well, maximum of 25.
0: Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We're going to turn to our next panelist, Dr. Gallahu, who I also want to hear your thoughts on on the data that we discussed on the 2019 match. Well, let's start there. What's your general observation?
3: I completely agree with Saurabh that I don't think it's any more competitive or less competitive. We are really seeing pretty much overall, this is pretty much the same. So I don't think people should be overly anxious about the application process and say that from 2019 data that this is, that they have to sweat it more than they would any other year. The other thing I think is talking about getting an advisor, you couldn't get better advice than to get a good advisor. And ideally an advisor in emergency medicine, because we frequently get students who, I think we just talked about it, advisors who are in the dean's office, not in our specialty, who are telling that AOA student that should not apply to more than 25 programs, go ahead and apply to 50 or 60. That's crazy.
0: I was gonna say, it's like any sport right you need to know the Mm -hmm. rules of the game and you need to know how to win the game and Mm -hmm. you would never ask a soccer coach to coach at a swim meet he or she just doesn't know all the nuances to get that swimmer, to get the best time. So it's Mm -hmm. the same thing. You need to have authentic people who understand how to play the game. So this means emergency medicine faculty, and I would argue probably clerkship or residency faculty only, because while the rest of our peers are very well-intentioned, they don't know the numbers very well. They don't know the year-to-year nuance changes like we're talking about in this program. So you really want advisors who are are trained to do this kind of work. Now, that could be other faculty members if they actually were trained by their PDs and clerkship directors, but by and large, it tends to to be those educational leaders on the org chart that are going to be your best advisors.
3: I think that's absolutely true. And then I would also say do some research. You know, there's Emra Match. It gives you a lot of information about the programs and the feel of the programs. I think there's some valuable information there and you can sort of tailor your application process accordingly. If you're not interested in a four-year program, maybe you shouldn't actually apply and interview at four-year programs, for example.
0: For example, I love that. Well, I'm just saying. I, I look to next year, and and what's new? And I, guys, we're in the the presence of royalty here because we have the President Elect of Cord on the panel. So we need to <laughs> need to use this opportunity and figure out what is new in the 2020 match, if anything. And and because of that, what new advice might you be giving, dear President, to your students as they approach the 2020 match? <laughs>
3: Um, Well, I think one of them is, please avoid double booking on Interview Broker. I'm not sure how many students are aware of it, but we get notified if there are double bookings on Interview Broker. So program directors know if you are holding on to two interviews, uh, if you are booking on Interview Broker. So that would be one thing that I think just, it's not new, new, but it is relatively new change.
2: If Fiona,
0: can you tell our audience what Interview Broker is?
3: So Interview Broker is a private company that helps programs schedule interview dates it's a wonderful program. It makes life much easier for programs as well as for students because you can, you get invited through this interview broker link, and then you get to sign up and you get to drop or switch and move around your interview dates as things start to ha- fill up, and you can do that all online. So interview broker is a technology that many, many programs are using to schedule their interview days. It's very helpful. I think it's useful for you as a student because you can sign up at any time in those 24 hours, and if you get another interview date, and there's interview dates available on the interview broker, you can move your dates without having to make multiple calls to multiple programs. Yeah,
0: I think the broker should result in a Nobel Prize. I'm simply going <laughs> to go there. What other things are new this year, Doctor Gallahue?
3: Well, President every- Gallahue,
0: President-elect Gallahue. <laughs> it's
3: okay. I will try to be a sage advisor, but I will also look to the panel to weigh in. The SVI is still here, it is still part of the pilot, and we do have information about how residency program directors are using it, and so there's an article that's out there that actually has my name on it, but we know that about 62% of program directors didn't know how to use the SVI, they didn't know how to use the scores, Um, and many are not actually using it right now because we don't have the validity results out there. There is an AAMC validity study with 17 programs that is looking to see whether The scores on the SVI actually correlate to the metrics of professionalism and interpersonal skills and communication, which is what we hope that the SVI does. So, A, I would want to make sure that people understand, don't overemphasize the value of the SVI because program directors are not. They are looking at them. About half of the program directors are looking at them. That study basically had 125 program directors weighing in, but over half of them, 62%, didn't really know how to use the SVI because those validity studies are not out yet. And I think we're going to see the same thing. So I would not overemphasize the importance of the SBI. I would not sweat the SBI too much. Just like any interview, practice interview questions is great, but I would not sweat it. I think sometimes people over, over prepare and I would not do that.
0: Great. Any final steps in the interview process that you want to emphasize? One was double booking with interview broker. I always like getting the students a little bit of free advice a few weeks before Aris <laughs> opened. Any final thing that just, you know, really bugs you and you want to make sure the students have some good advice?
3: I would just say, please don't over interview. I think the one thing that I have seen a little bit of a change in in the last two years is that those students who are AOA and clearly competitive and are getting great advising are interviewing at too many places. And that's limiting the number of interviews for the regular run of the mill, wonderful average candidate who's going to do phenomenally well. So please don't over interview. Please don't interview to, at more than 15 programs total. You really don't need to unless your couple's matching.
0: There were so many descriptors in that last sentence, the regular, wonderful, phenomenally over-the-moon student. That was awesome. Let's say the average student. Let's just take the average student from an average school. We're going to do one more round robin here. I want to know how many interviews they should go on. Average student, average school. Rob, how many interviews should they do?
2: I really think uh, an average student should be going on no more than 12 to 15 interviews. The data is pretty clear, right? You go on 12 interviews, you rank 12, you've had about 98% chance of matching. That's almost
4: 100%. Correct. Fiona, number?
3: I am with, Rob, 100% on this. 12 to 15 is my advice as well.
4: Brad? I agree. 15 should be the maximum. All
0: right. So let's switch gears, and we're going to close our panel discussion with Dr. Bunny from UIC. And again, I want to start with your general observations about the 2019 match data that we discussed earlier.
4: I think it's very much staying in the middle of the road. I don't think it's any more competitive or any less competitive than it's been over the last few years. I'm going to have to be reminded by you if the, the year was that EM completely filled. And I think that that's when we started to see an anxiety uptick in senior uh, medical students applying to EM programs. I think that you're right in mentioning that the blogs do not necessarily have the best information on them but i think that that's where this hype comes from to a large extent and i completely agree uh, with everybody else that the advisor is the key here and having an em advisor that is part of the education process when i'm talking to my fellow faculty members in the department who are not necessarily part of my education team i ask them specifically if they have fourth year medical students that are interested in em Please make sure that you also send them to either me or to one of my APDs to sit down and discuss the entire application process with them. Because I think that the level of anxiety amongst medical students just talking to each other is what leads to these astronomical numbers of applications that they're putting in that go up to 40 to 50 applications, which is just not necessary.
0: All right, so let's again turn away from 2019 and look to the future and talk about what's going to happen in the 2020 match. First, a bit of advice for the students from you as well, Dr. Bunny. What are the
4: must-dos for a student entering this coming match? The must-dos are all really about presentation and professionalism. My deepest sage advice, if you will, to medical students entering the EM match is that everybody you talk to matters. Specifically, what I'm talking about is when you're making phone calls and you're talking to my coordinator, she gets a vote. So realize that professionalism across the entire process is what matters. It's not just how you look on that interview day.
0: So as the last panelist today, you get to do the fun future casting of the match and tell us what should change, right? If it's not necessarily going to change in 2020, what should change in the match in the next couple of years? And I'm going to start with a very provocative question for you. Are there too many emergency physicians in the current workforce?
4: So that's a great question. And that is actually something that if you talk to certain emergency physicians, there was literally just an article in one of the uh, newspapers that come out, Emergency Medicine News by Thomas Cook, that asked that question. And whether or not we are increasing the number of programs and therefore the number of residents that we have in our programs to produce more emergency medicine physicians and whether or not that demand nationally is out there. Some would argue yes, some would argue no. I can tell you that specifically in the Chicagoland area, as we are growing our programs, and in the last two to three years, we've gone from six programs to nine, we're going to be producing a lot more emergency physicians in the coming years. Um, And that's going to lead to an impact on jobs. And so that's something that we do need to consider.
0: Yeah, I think we've noticed for several years that there's some tight urban markets already, and you know I think there are some general observations that perhaps the workforce is is getting uh, a bit tight. But I will say that we this is opinion, students. We do not have data. <laughs> the ASEP um, workforce mm-hmm. uh, task force is coming. Uh, it's begun. They're going to look at actual numbers and try to make some data driven, evidence based decisions about the size of our workforce and the type of providers that need to be added, whether it needs to be emergency physicians or something else, and in what areas of the country. But I do think the general observation, you're right, Brad, holds true that in certain urban markets, you know, it is it is a tight market for emergency physicians, and students should perhaps consider that.
3: I, I, can I just weigh in on the workforce, though, as I do think we don't have enough emergency physicians in the rural areas, and I do think that we do have a dearth of programs that are preparing residents to work in rural and critical access hospitals. Just a plug. Well, absolutely.
0: And you wonder if we're going to get more GME slots per institution or if there's going to be new funding mechanisms in the coming years. Perhaps it's the urban programs adding rural medicine training Uh, in other partner hospital areas around the country who don't have GME slots, perhaps Mm -hmm. those are the ones we should be funding first. So I totally agree with you, Fiona. Um, All right, Brad, any final suggestions on what should change in the next match?
4: I think all of the things that we've discussed are really what medical students need to take home. And I think that, as Fiona was pointing out, the average applicant to emergency medicine is an awesome applicant. And that's really the bottom line. Over the course of over a decade that I have been a program director, I have literally had to have the talk with three M4s saying, you know what, EM is not for you. And if you've gone through rotations and you have not had the talk, then you're going to be okay. That no matter what your board scores are, plus or minus, and how your slows are, There are programs out there that are interested in training great EM physicians, and you don't have to be at the absolute pinnacle of your class in order to match them.
0: Yeah, I would agree. I think average for our specialty is still a very strong candidate. Um, Michelle, I always love your end of episode summaries and takeaways. Mine I'm going to say is that, you know, it's not more competitive. It's not less competitive. The porridge is just right to eat, it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah. Did you get that? That was pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you taking away from today's episode?
1: Well, I'm starting to see a pattern. I mean, this happens every year when we reflect back and like it's not more competitive. It's generally pretty competitive. Don't stress out. And every time I go on shift, I'll poll like these amazing visiting students coming by and I'm like, oh, by the way, how many programs you're applying to? At a minimum, the lowest answer I've heard so far is forty five. The <gasps> lowest. What? Firstly, are you not watching our episodes? (laughs) And then secondly, what the hell is going on? And they just, there is a mass hysteria going on. And I just am frustrating because I'm not sure how to convey the reassurances that you guys are giving. Anyway, I just share my frustrations and I'm not really sure what to do with that. Maybe we need to rename
0: the episode Stop the Madness, right? I mean, as opposed to like erudite program directors reflect on a bunch of data that the students don't understand. I mean, maybe it's just stop the madness. Right.
4: So if I could just chime in. So Michelle, from your formula from last year, in which I think that the advisor, advisor, advisor is key. Um, and if you remember, your formula was like, if you talk to a true EM educator, a program director in APB, they'll give you a straight number. The further you get away from that to either other EM faculty or Or even if you go to associate deans or even if you go to deans, you have to start subtracting from that number because they really don't know what the data is and what the competitiveness level of that is. And so there needs to be a way that we can get students into the right advisory level people to be able to get that number down below 45 because that is just an astronomical number.
1: Isn't it? Well, I have a 2.0 version of that formula. Which is, All which right. is, you're right? So if you're, you're talking to a program leadership, sure, go with that number. That's legit. Then as you move up, you then divide by 1.2, right? And then you take a square root and then you text Jasandi what the real answer is. <laughs>
0: oh However, my God, I'll make everyone break this for them. You know, that's an op- open thing, students. Oh. So you send me the list and I'll order it for right, you. Right, there you Absolutely. go. But
1: if I think you are not a good fit, for emergency medicine, I will give you Brad's number instead, oh, and he will have to talk talk the talk with world. you. So right. that Thanks is, that is very my triage point.
0: What a panel. We had Buckeyes and Huskies and Flames. Oh, my. <laughs> this was outstanding. Now we're going to switch gears and give those Buckeyes, Huskies, and Flames a chance to tell us a little bit about their program. In Michelle's favorite segment, Tell Me Something I Don't Know About Your Program. And we're going to start – with Dr. Candawall and the Ohio State University, tell me something I don't know about your program, and I've visited your program, so you're going to realize to try hard.
2: You have, but I, let me tell you what I'm really proud of, though. You know, we were fortunate to have received a one million dollar endowment, which was matched by the department, so a total of a two million dollar endowment that was focused on resident wellness and professional growth. So these funds exclusively to support residents, right? So get-togethers and opportunities to follow their passion, like global health opportunities, and attend specific conferences across the country and the world. You know, we understand residency as a hill. And uh, at Buckeye Nation, we want our residents to know that they have a lot of hands on their back helping them uphill.
0: You have a $2 million fund for resident wellness? We're done, panelists. (laughs) Students will not listen beyond this. Did you not hear the mic drop? No, really. We all heard it across the whole country. Yeah. (laughs) God. Just another reason, Ohio State, man. All right. I love it. The Ohio State University has a beautiful emergency department, specifically for the care of cancer patients, too, which I think is outstanding training in a world where we have a great need for end-of-life and palliative care training. Uh, I think you guys are doing it expertly. Conference is small group. They have wonderful online learning resources to support it. Much fewer didactics than any of the rest of the panelists, so including me and Michelle, I'm sure. You guys, students, have to check out The Ohio State University. It's outstanding. Um, Dr. Gallyhue, do you have a $2 million endowment for resident wellness?
3: Sadly, I do not. Uh, all
0: isn't. right. So I knew that. And uh, But what <laughs> the question really is, because is, none of the rest of us do, tell me something <laughs> I don't know about the University of Washington.
3: So for everybody who does or doesn't know us, one of our hallmarks of our program is really social advocacy, and we've recently rolled out this section of population health. Really, really proud of the fact that we have a number of initiatives, uh, HIV, hepatitis A screening for community uh, patients, and recently suboxone X waiver training for our residents and our faculty. And in fact, all of our interns are now X-waivered. We tweeted that out, and we got a tweet back by Jerome Adams, the general surgeon of the United States, saying what a great job we were doing to support our patients. So super proud of that. And this year, of the nine residents who were nominated for the UWHA House Staff Humanitarian Award out of approximately 1,200 trainees, five of those nine were our residents. So I think we're doing a really great job on social advocacy and uh, community building.
0: Well, I love that. And I did not know about that. And that's really a hat tip to you guys. You know, the social determinants of health have been obvious to emergency physicians for years. And Mm -hmm. we're just starting to redesign our training programs to reflect that reality. Right. And I think we've had a couple of social EM fellowships around the country for a few years. But, man, they're taking off now. Right. There's Uh uh, standing room only attendance at both ASAP and SAM at the last social EM Interest group meeting. So um, you guys are on the forefront and students, the University of Washington's had it together for a long time now. Uh, <laughs> you definitely have to check them out. And then back to my friend in Chicago, Dr. Bunny and the Brown Coats. Maybe we need to define that for our listeners. Tell us something we don't know about the University of Illinois, Chicago.
4: Thank you, Mike. Well, the University of Illinois at Chicago EM program is actually one of the oldest programs in the country. Uh, we've been in existence since the very early 1980s. Um, we have always been a multi-hospital consortium, meaning that you get exposed to the wide variety of patient populations that we have here in Chicago. We, too, have recently uh, started our track within our residency program on social EM and population health. Um, We have upwards of six to seven projects that our research faculty are working on that are all geared towards social EM and population health, ranging from HIV and hepatitis C to blood pressure control to cardiac arrest survival. Just recently, we've been placed into the top 20 of university-based departments as far as NIH funding is concerned in regards to those projects. And what's a brown coat? A brown coat is the lab coat that our residents wear. It has dates all the way back to the very beginning of our program. It's not white. It's not blue. It is an off-brown, and that's been in existence, uh, like I said, since the beginning. The legend has it that when you're doing your off-service rotations and you're in the MICU and a patient is coding, the nurse is always going to search for the brown coat first because that's the person who's going to save the patient's life.
0: Oh, I love that. Students, you have to check out the University of Illinois, Chicago. Huge medical center, huge program, long legacy. Some of the big names in our specialty have come out of UIC and some really busy hospitals that they're currently training at. Michelle, thanks for having us. Thanks to our panelists for discussing the 2019 match and students. Good luck in filling out the ARIS application in the next couple of weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Emergency Medicine Match Advice. You can view any of our episodes for free on Alium's YouTube channel, or if you prefer, listen to the episodes as Alien Podcasts on SoundCloud. Also, check out summaries of our episodes as blog posts on Alium.com and in the publication A User's Guide to the Alium EM Match Advice Series in the June 2017 issue of the Western Journal of Emergency Medicine. We love to hear from our listeners. Post your questions or comments for any of our episodes on Alium.com.